hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In our next few episodes, we will be exploring advanced artificial intelligence. We'll be speaking to people about governing this transformative technology and how to prevent potential catastrophes caused by advanced AI. But before we look ahead, we figured that we should begin by getting some grounding on where we are today in the history and trends behind the development of AI so far. To really understand where we are now, we should probably understand some things about the supply chain behind advanced computing. For as much as AI seems to be made up of disembodied lines of code that we can access from anywhere via the internet, it actually requires a lot of physical inputs, from incredibly complicated hardware to huge data centers to talented labs of people and much more. Thinking about these real-world inputs means thinking about economic and geopolitical issues surrounding who controls production, where this production takes place, and what this production ultimately gets used for. And answering these questions highlights some risky possibilities, such as US-Chinese tensions and businesses under pressure to outcompete each other. But they also point to some potential solutions, such as where in this complicated system governance can intervene and what actors' underlying motivations are so that we can avoid a race to the bottom that neglects safety. To help give context to these questions, we spoke to Chris Miller, who is an associate professor of international history at Tufts University, an author of the book Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, which has won much praise, including the FT Business Book of the Year. Chris's book tells the decade-long history of how we got from the invention of the transistor in 1947 to where we are today. So again, this episode is mostly about historical context. Uh, we do not explicitly talk about existential risks or specific policy interventions, but we do think that many listeners, especially those new to this topic, can get a lot of useful background information from it. Uh, we look at how chips have historically been related to US military strategy, how the Taiwanese company TSMC became such an important player in this space, but other countries' attempts have failed, and what the recent Chips Act signals about coming attitudes uh, for the decade ahead. So without further ado, here's Chris Miller. All right, Chris Miller, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I look forward to talking about um, the history of semiconductor manufacturing, but maybe a place to start is just to get a, get a sense of how incredibly complex the industry is today. So I was wondering if you could share some details about just how impressive and how complicated um, the semiconductor industry and supply chain is right now. So making an advanced semiconductor requires uh, hundreds or in, in many cases, several thousand process steps. And, uh, and advanced semiconductors today, like the one you find in, uh, in your smartphone, for example, or in a data center, uh, will have uh, billions of transistors on them. And the, the most advanced transistors are the smallest transistors. And today, transistors can be made the size of a virus uh, by the billions. And so the uh, specialized uh, and ultra-purified chemicals and gases uh, are needed are, are really uh, extraordinary. And the machine tools that uh, can work with the materials by layering chemicals and uh, onto silicon uh, wafers just a couple atoms thick or by uh, etching uh, canyons in the silicon just a couple of atoms wide and do so with basically perfect accuracy uh, a billion times uh, an hour uh, is is really an extraordinary feat of manufacturing. We don't normally think about um, computing as resulting from manufacturing prowess, but in fact, uh, all of the chips that produce computing power and remember data for us are all manufactured using precision manufacturing techniques. Right. One fact I enjoyed from your book was that there is one plant operated by TSMC in Taiwan, which over the course of a year, maybe it was 2021, 
uh, manufactured more transistors than all the goods sold across all the industries in all of human history, which really put things in perspective. Just, just to add on, on, on that point, acquiring the machinery, acquiring the chemicals, acquiring the materials involved is something that uh, is impossible for a single company to do. We, we talk about TSMC being the world's most advanced chip maker, and that's true, uh, but they buy machine tools from the world's most advanced machine tool makers. Uh, and there's uh, five companies that play a really substantial role in the tooling segment. They buy chemicals uh, and gases from a pretty small number of uh, companies as well. And then they, they uh, acquire chip designs from also a a relatively small number of customers that make up the bulk of their revenue, companies like Apple, NVIDIA, AMD, uh, and others. So across the chip industry, there's uh, a, a set of sort of oligopolistic markets that uh, produce the precision uh, and the capabilities that chip making relies on, which uh, on the one hand is, has made possible this extraordinary specialization, which is what's needed uh, to produce advanced chips, but it also uh, adds to some of the risk in the supply chains because you don't have lots of producers at most steps of the production process. You've got a small number of companies and often a small number of facilities uh, that are actually uh, producing the necessary tools or uh, materials. Can you maybe spell out um, a little bit as to why, as you said, uh, a lot of the supply chain seems to be so monopolized or, or dominated by, by a select like, number of few firms? Like, What are the kind of um, yeah, drivers of that? Yeah, I think there are, are two basic reasons behind it. One is that m many parts of the chip making process are extraordinarily capital intensive. That's true for chip fabrication, where a new uh, chip making uh, facility can cost $20 billion. So, you know, your startup's not going to raise $20 billion. Uh, and e even the comparatively less capital intensive parts uh, are still pretty capital intensive. So it's, it's not like software where you can start with a pretty small budget and then grow over time. For a lot of segments of the chip industry, you just need massive capital at the outset. Um, and so that that's a barrier to entry. But next to that, I think, is the, the specialized knowledge that is involved in a number of key parts of the supply chain is something that is uh, learnable only in that segment of the industry. So a lot of the really unique material science uh, that's involved is something that you can study the background principles of in a PhD program in material science, but you can't actually get the, the really nuanced understanding that you need to mass produce it uh, unless you've worked for a relevant company. And, and so that means that if you're thinking about potential competitors or new entrants, you're often thinking about uh, new entrants that are founded by someone who's already in the industry and is able to raise a substantial amount of capital. Uh, and that just limits the ability of new interests. Now, there are some. Uh, uh, we, we do see new chip design firms in particular, which is the least capital intensive of all of the uh, chip market. And in other places, like in the photo resist, uh, which is one of the types of chemicals you need to make chips, uh, there are some new interests, uh, new entrants in that market. But in aggregate, you see a lot less uh, entrants and exit than you might expect, um, just given those two pretty substantial barriers. Yeah, and how yeah do these monopolies, uh, if at all, like ever get dislodged? You mentioned kind of new entrants there, but if we're looking at the firms that are kind of dominating these supply chains today, and we compare it to the nineteen fifties when a lot of this story began, um, yeah, like what would it take for for any monopoly to get dislodged if at all? We do have a couple examples of of uh, firms with really substantial market positions getting dislodged, and and the key thing is the key driver is really big technological shifts. So I think an example of that might be. Um, Intel right now, which um, for a long time, uh, computing both in the PC and in data centers was really happening around the x86 architecture, which is one of the ways you can uh, 
architect the chip, uh, which Intel was really the biggest player in and only had one competitor, AMD. Uh, and over the past decade, there's been a really big shift, especially in data centers, in terms of uh, the the focus of of high performance computing. It's moved away from the architecture that Intel specializes in uh, towards alternative um, uh, ways of designing a chip, like a GPUs, for example, have begun to play a much bigger uh, role in data centers. And that's that's not because Intel did a bad job at CPU design per se, although you could argue about their uh, market share vis-a-vis AMD, but the big shift is that new types of chips uh, emerge to, um, to to play a bigger role. Uh, and so that's where you get pressure on existing uh, uh, major players is when the technology shifts in a way that is unanticipated by most of the market, in- including the incumbents. But in the manufacturing process, you had less of that um, because chip manufacturing has really operated in the same basic way since 1960. It's just gotten better and better and better, but you're you're still buying the same types of tools, just tools that are a thousand times more advanced uh, than they were. So there haven't really been any major disruptions to the manufacturing process itself. So lots of countries clearly have an interest in owning and controlling parts of the ship supply chain. I'm curious how much of that interest comes from um, national defense and military considerations. That's clearly a major driver of why governments are interested, um, but economics is also a, a big driver as well. Uh, so today, uh, 98 or so percent of chips end up in um, civilian use cases, whether that's smartphones, PCs, civilian-focused data centers, and it's really only a small percentage of chips that get consumed by governments for security purposes. Um, and so that means that if you want to make money in chips, uh, the easiest way to do it is selling uh, to the smartphone market or selling the data, data center market rather than military use cases. But for militaries, computing power is absolutely critical. And it's it's both semiconductors that are in data centers that are training new systems. Um, and it's also lots of semiconductors that are distributed across military systems and sensors, processing data that uh, systems are, are acquiring and then often communicating it back to a, a more centralized uh, data center. And so militaries more than ever before are dependent on semiconductors um, for, for their edge. And that's why, uh, although militaries have been interested in chips since the first ones were invented in the late 1950s, uh, it's increasingly the case that defense planners are thinking hard about their ability to access the most advanced semiconductors and then quickly apply them to their own military systems. When we're thinking about, um, like, especially leading edge chips being used in defense, like what kind of image should I have in my head? Are these like chips on, on missiles? Are they kind of computer simulations? Uh, like what kind of use cases? You, you do find leading edge chips um, on military systems themselves. So on an airplane, uh, for example, you, you, you'll, you can find some leading edge chips. But the I think the the right thing to think about is data centers because it's data centers that are going to train the AI systems that will increasingly play a bigger role uh, in defense applications. And so, you know, this could be uh, drones learning to fly autonomously or semi-autonomously, they're trained in data centers, or it could be electronic warfare systems. So if you wanna jam your opponent's communications and not have yours be jammed, uh, you need to understand what parts of the spectrum they're jamming, jump your communications to free parts of the spectrum. And that's increasingly done, um, not by humans trying to figure out what's being jammed, but it's just all automated. And, and so that, that type of training also happens in data centers. And so in the past, in the origins of the chip industry, chips were being plugged into missiles to guide the computers more accurately. But now it's, they're being, military systems are being trained in data centers uh, to work more accurately. And so when we talk about chips for military systems at the cutting edge, 
what I think people don't think about, but should be thinking about is the data centers that could be used to train a civilian system or a military system just as effectively, but militaries are like the rest of the economy, uh, turning to uh, data centers to hone their performance. And that's, that's where the real uh, security risks come in uh, because the same types of concerns about do we understand um, what our data centers are training? Do we understand the systems that are emerging uh, is particularly important when those systems uh, you know, have explosives at the end of them. Um, and so we really want to be careful that we understand exactly how they operate. So you mentioned earlier that TSMC is one of the biggest players in the um, chip supply chain. If I remember right, they make uh, approaching half of all the consumer chips in the world. Can you say something about the story that led up to that point, how do they become so dominant? Yeah, so TSMC was founded in 1987 uh, by a, a businessman named Morris Chang, who uh, had spent most of his career in Texas at Texas Instruments. He was uh, he was uh, the runner up to become CEO in the mid 1980s, passed over from the CEO job, and then left. Uh, and uh, was approached by the government of Taiwan, where he'd spent some time before uh, as a Texas Instruments executive. Um, and the Taiwanese government wanted to build their own chip industry and gave him essentially a blank check to invest uh, in Taiwan and build up uh, TSMC. And he had a, a new idea uh, for structuring a business that revolutionized the industry. And that idea was the foundry model of production. So before this time, almost all chips were designed and manufactured by the same companies. But his intuition, which proved absolutely correct, was that if you focus solely on manufacturing, you could end up manufacturing more chips because you could serve multiple different customers and you could get economies of scale that let you both drive down costs and hone your production processes. They became more advanced because you were learning from your chip making process over the production of a larger volume of chips than your competitors. And so from that point, uh, TSMC has become both the world's most advanced producer of processor chips and also the world's largest chip maker, uh, producing more chips than uh, any of its rivals and, and far more today than, for example, Intel, which uh, still mostly produces uh, chips that it itself designs in-house. So Taiwan seems to be a case study where a uh, country or government was able to, in large part, intentionally capture uh, a big part of the semiconductor supply chain. But there also seem to be a lot of failures of other countries trying to do uh, the same. And uh, in your book, the Soviet Union seems to be uh, like one particular case study. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what happened there, and in particular, why it is so hard actually doing this? Well, I, I found the Soviet case study fascinating, and, and it started really as a, a puzzle to me as to what went wrong in the Soviet Union. Because if you had to sort of, from a first principles perspective, say, what do you need to build a chip industry? You'd say, well, you need a lot of smart physicists and scientists. Well, the Soviet Union had that. In fact, they had physicists who won Nobel Prizes in semiconductor physics. Uh, so from the science perspective, they had what you needed. Uh, you need a lot of capital investment. Well, a centrally planned economy that was spending a ton on its military certainly checked the box when it came to capital investment. Uh, you need uh, a baseline understanding of the technology. Well, the Soviets had that too. The, uh, the Soviet Union invented their own first integrated circuit just two years after uh, it was invented in the United States. So they were not far behind by uh, any metric, but there were, there were two things that went wrong in the Soviet Union. Uh, the first was that from the beginning, there was a focus on trying to replicate 
what U.S. firms were doing and, and to a lesser extent European firms were doing. And replication was a good strategy in many ways. And in terms of thinking about catch-up growth and catch-up technological pro uh, progress, replication often works quite well up to a point. Uh, but in this industry, uh, it worked very badly um, because the Soviets were quite effective at replicating, uh, but they were replicating at a pretty long time lag. And thanks to Moore's law, that left them uh, quite far behind the cutting edge. The, the second challenge they faced was that they could never develop any sort of international market or international supply chains. Uh, and that meant that the uh, market to which they were selling was tiny relative to the market that um, U.S. or later Japanese ship firms were selling to. Uh, and the component purchase process was very complicated because if you were at Texas Instruments, you could buy uh, components from anywhere in the United States or Japan or the key industrialized countries of Western Europe. And so had a vast product market to choose from. Whereas if you're in the Soviet Union, you had to make it all yourself. Or you could you'd buy from East Germany, you could buy from Hungary to a certain extent, but it was a really small uh, component uh, base. And so that meant as you tried to specialize and tried to advance uh, in terms of your chip making, you were uh, selling to a small market and therefore your your, your capital expenditure to revenue ratio was way off. Uh, and simultaneously, you had, to, you had to spend more money on the investment side because you couldn't simply buy pre-made materials or pre-made equipment off the shelf to the extent that uh, Western firms could. And so those two dynamics, the copying plus the uh, stunted market for components and uh, market in terms of end sales really caused huge problems for uh, Soviet firms and meant that despite all the capital investment, despite all the brilliant physics that were uh, already in the Soviet Union, the country was never able to build anything close to a viable chip industry. And therefore, it never really was able to build a viable computer industry either, uh, to the extent that it was importing mainframe computers from IBM throughout the Cold War. When we're looking forwards now, the key question around kind of catching up to the leading edge or, or even overtaking now seems to be around China. And I wonder how uh, you take the case of China to, to feature on uh, these uh, two criteria points you mentioned there. Yeah, so I, I think that there's there's two questions to be asked here. One is, what was China doing 15 years ago or 10 years ago? And there's two, what is China going to be doing over the next 10 or 15 years? Uh, because I think you've seen a really big shift driven uh, both by politics in uh, Beijing, but also by politics in, in Washington. For, for most of the last 15 years, China's electronics industry was one of the most internationally connected of all the industries in China. Um, if you think of all the tech supply chains that intersect China, if you think of all the Western venture capital money that funded uh, Chinese startups, there's just a ton of international interconnection uh, between the Chinese tech sector and the Chinese electronics assembly sector and the rest of the world. And that enabled really substantial advances um, uh, across China's uh, tech and electronics um, space. But I think what we've seen over the last five to seven years is a, a meaningful shift um, driven by politics towards a much more bifurcated uh, uh, tech supply chain with a, a Chinese focused uh, supply chain emerging and then a, a US, Japan, uh, Korea, Taiwan supply chain uh, that's emerging on the other side. Uh, and simultaneous to that, you see um, a pretty active US, Japanese, Taiwanese effort to cut off transfers of advanced technology uh, to China uh, with the goal of, of holding China back. And, and the combination of this means that I, I think the outlook for uh, Chinese tech over the next 10, 15 years is going to be quite different from the last 10 or 15 years because the factors that were driving technological advancement uh, are increasingly under threat. 
Uh, and the, the strategy of the Chinese government, as I understand it today, uh, with regard to the tech sector is to have, um, is to have state directed capital investment try to fill the gap that international connection, uh, and it, the, the increasingly, um, uh, increasing kind of threat to international connections, uh, has left. And so, um, what that means is that the Chinese government is, is going to bet that they're going to spend more on the chip industry and hope that this is going to solve their, um, technological challenges. And I think that's a, that's a mediocre bet to be making. It might work. Um, but I think the track record suggests that capital investment is a, is a necessary, but not a sufficient, uh, factor, uh, to, to make advances. And so I, I would be, and I think if you talk to people in the Chinese chip industry, many of them are actually quite pessimistic, um, proud of their advances uh, in recent years, but also looking forward to a much more uncertain decade ahead. So we've recently also seen a big move in US policy with the Chips Act and the Fabs Act. Um, on the one hand, this is trying to perhaps clamp down on technology transfers. And also it's trying to onshore our production back to the US ultimately, right? Um, so I don't know if you could just briefly explain what these um, acts are saying. And I'm also curious whether you view this as a break from historical US semiconductor policy. So there were there were two big policy changes last year in the in the US. Uh, the first was the CHIPS Act, which uh, allocates around $50 billion in funding in the next five years to a mix of incentives for uh, U.S. and foreign companies to build chip making facilities in the U.S. And then uh, a, a portion of that money is also going to fund a longer term R&D. So that, that's the CHIPS Act. And then uh, almost simultaneous to that, the U.S. imposed new export controls that limit the transfer of uh, GPU chips, as well as uh, a number of types of chip making uh, tools to China. Um, I think you need to look at these these two moves as, as related but distinct. Um, the, the export controls were primarily designed to hold back China's progress. And if you listen to US officials like Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, um, he was very explicit in a speech in September right before these controls were rolled out saying, our goal is to grow the gap between US and Chinese capabilities by pushing US capabilities forward and holding China's back. So it's a pretty zero sum uh, view of 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 the you know, world techno technology landscape um, and and a change from um, the last couple of decades of U.S. tech policy. Uh, the, the Chips Act, I think, is a little bit different uh, in its focus. I think the Chips Act is really best read as a as an insurance policy in case of a war in the Taiwan Straits. I think the the combination of uh, growing Chinese military capabilities vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. Uh, coupled with the the outbreak of Ru the Russia Ukraine war have uh, sensitized, I think, uh, U.S. policymakers uh, and not only U.S. policymakers to the risk that something could go wrong in the Taiwan Straits. And given TSMC's absolutely critical role in uh, producing the chips that uh, global manufacturing output relies on, there's real concern that even if your your percentage likelihood of a China-Taiwan war in the next 10 years is not that high, the expected value is still already huge because the cost would be enormous. And so CHIPS Act is really an insurance policy uh, around that. And so it's going to have a, an effect, not a, not a dramatic effect, I don't think, but an effect in uh, increasing uh, investment in chip fabrication in the U.S. and similar programs in Japan, uh, in Europe, uh, in, in India and elsewhere, I think will also uh, on the margin have an impact. Taiwan's critical role is, 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 is still going to remain, um, but there will be a bit less concentration 
in Taiwan uh, than in the past. Um, is, is this a change from uh, prior, uh, uh, prior policy? Uh, you know, in some ways, yes. It's certainly a change from policy over the last 20 years where the U.S. government and most governments didn't think that hard about semiconductors. Um, but in some ways, it's a return to the historical norm um, because the U.S. government has always seen uh, semiconductors and computing more generally as a source of uh, strategic advantage in terms of intelligence collection and in terms of military systems. Uh, and I think uh, I think you know, we're basically reverting to the the norm of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in terms of treating this type of technology not simply as something that goes into consumer goods, but also something that is is really critical to determining the military balance. Um, I guess one question I have, especially about export controls, is just like why would companies comply with this? Um, presumably, or like what's the like either like carrot or the stick there? Presumably. Um, there is like a lot of money to be made in, you know, either like transferring technology or like selling uh, like things to China. Uh, and if you talk about like a lot of the companies here that are like of interest aren't just companies based in the US, but companies based in uh, Taiwan or like elsewhere around the world. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's a fascinating question. And, and one of the, the unintended consequences of the internationalization of supply chains is that uh, more and more supply chains cross through more and more countries. Uh, and so what that means is that for the bigger economies and for the U.S. above all, uh, that actually gives the U.S. more influence over more supply chains than it used to have. Because if you look, for example, at um, uh, TSMC, it's the world's most advanced ship maker. Uh, it's absolutely irreplaceable, um, but it can't produce advanced ships without relying on U.S. tools. Simply impossible. Um, maybe to be possible in 20 years time, but it's not possible today. And so TSMC for a variety of reasons is quite responsive to US export controls, uh, partly uh, because Taiwan's in a unique position vis-a-vis -vis US, but also because uh, they need US tools to produce. And, and Samsung is the same. And every chip company in the world is basically in a similar position of requiring some US tools to, um, to produce chips. Now, as you go to, to more lower technology chips, the lagging edge chips, that becomes um, less true as you get into pretty low tech chips, but if you're anywhere close to the cutting edge, you can't do it without uh, US technology. Similarly, if you look at um, uh, the companies that make chip making tools in Japan or the Netherlands, what you often find there too is that they rely on a lot of US technology too, because the R&D processes are often happening in a multinational fashion. Uh, many companies have R&D in Europe and the US and in Japan and have production in multiple countries as well. And so even if you look, for example, at the lithography tools that ASML produces. Uh, the most advanced ASML systems are assembled in the Netherlands using components uh, from Germany, but also from the US. And so ASML can't produce uh, its most advanced lithography tools without using really substantial amounts of US components too. So it's a Dutch company and they're Dutch made tools, but with components from other countries. And so that's another reason why, um, why they would also be responsive to U.S. export controls. Now, actually, they're restricted from exporting EUV tools by Dutch export controls. Um, but if they weren't restricted by Dutch export controls, you know, one could hypothesize that uh, the U.S. Uh, might also impose controls. Do you have a sense of how far the U.S. can uh, push this before there might be uh, kind of like resistance or something? Uh, and I guess like kind of in turn, um, seeing more of a, a fracturing of the global supply chain, not just in terms of like U.S. versus China, but also in terms of just like international companies being, oh wow, we're like really heavily reliant on some U.S. inputs and therefore really heavily reliant on U.S. foreign policy, it might be good if we like start looking to uh, sourcing things elsewhere. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's it's hard to hard to know where the line is uh, when you have companies begin to take costly steps to do so. I think one of the disincentives for that is that if you look at the customer base for advanced chipmaking materials, tools, software, uh, it's mostly in Taiwan, South Korea, the US are the three major customers. So for all of the big tool makers, the three, three big customers on the logic chip making side are Samsung, TSMC, and Intel. And in terms of memory chips, it's Hynix, South Korean firm, Samsung, South Korean firm, and, uh, and Micron, a US firm. And so you've got a, a really interesting overlap between major chip making countries and US military allies. And for countries like Taiwan and South Korea, you know, they're, the defense commitment from the US is a very politically important uh, thing. And so, and so you can't, I don't think, simply interpret the chip industry, even though people in the industry like to interpret it just through the context of business relationships. When politics comes into play, there's the security aspect um, as well. And so I think if you look at the export controls the US is pushing right now, um, one of the things that will make them relatively more effective, and we'll see how effective they're going to be, but I think one of the factors that is going to uh, support their efficacy is that the countries the U.S. is asking to come along board are Japan, which has basically the same threat perception as the U.S. does on China, Taiwan, uh, which is in a really complicated place, but uh, quite reliant on on the U.S. Um, and so, you know, those two countries, I think you should expect to um, to be pretty uh, pretty compliant with with U.S. desires in large part because there's a lot of agreement at the outset. I think if you look at countries that have um, have have somewhat different threat perceptions vis-a-vis -vis China than the US, Korea, um, or the Netherlands, um, you see slightly different approaches uh, on, on these issues. There is an overlap between, I think, the, the political uh, views of governments and the um, willingness to, to follow export controls. But if you step back and look at the chip industry, what you find is that the US is still the biggest player by far from design, tooling, end use. Um, and uh, China is still a small market at the end of the day. And, and that, that really shapes how the industry makes decisions. I mean, a natural question there is what you think is most likely to change that, if anything. For instance, one example might be if a new bottlenecking technology comes along, like the next um, EUV, and for instance, China becomes a leader. Is that plausible? It's certainly plausible. Um, and the question is, what would that technology be? And the answer is, um, nobody knows. Um, I will say that on the lithography side, if you think of EUV, we've got a pretty clear pathway for the next uh, five or 10 years of lithography development. And it, uh, it's hard to find someone who would bet against ASML uh, uh, leading that charge. And I think the same is basically true with the other key process steps, deposition, etching, et cetera. Um, I, I think bigger risks uh, uh, to the status quo actually come from um, not from the chip making process, but from the importance of chips. Um, and if you look, for example, at um, you know all of the growth right now that's coming uh, from data centers, you know, one key question is to what extent it, does computing power remain uh, the the really limiting factor in in uh, in data centers, or can we get algorithms that use less data and therefore require less computing power? Um, is there a way that kind of computing architectures change in a way that makes us less reliant on on, on chips, I'm sort of skeptical of that thesis, but uh, that that would certainly be a, a major risk that could upset the uh, the current structure of the chip industry. Got it. Okay, Chris Miller, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
That was Chris Miller on the history of semiconductors, TSMC, and the chipset. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, then one of the most effective ways to help us is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. You can also follow us on Twitter, we're at Hear This Idea. Uh, I also mentioned that we still have a feedback form on our website. We read every submission and you'll receive a free book for filling it out. Uh, you can also find that on our website, which is hearthisidea.com. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thanks very much to you for listening.